Good morning. This is God's word from Matthew 5. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Thank you, Natalie. Good morning, church family. How are we doing? You guys good? You're melting? <clears throat> uh, if you're new, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to have you with us. Uh, I would like to address a couple of questions that I've been asked already today. First question. No, John Fox is not preaching today, even though it's like a once-in-a-generation heat wave. It seems like every time John is scheduled to preach, there is a 100-degree heat or a snowstorm or a tornado or whatever. Nope, he's off this week. It's, you're stuck with me. Uh, second question. No, you cannot get baptized again as a way to get cooled down partway through the worship service. I have been asked that. Uh, third question. More of a statement. If you see flames of fire above your neighbor's head, do not automatically assume that it's just the Holy Spirit manifesting. They might actually be on fire. You should discern the will of the Lord for what you should do, whether you should pray for them or pour water on them. So uh, it is hot, obviously. Uh, it's, it's kind of wild. to we, we melted the computer that we run our live stream on, so we're not even able to live stream today. So it's just us. And I will be like an Alabama preacher using this sweat rag throughout uh, the preaching time. Please don't be distracted by it. It's kind of gross, but it's just going to have to happen today. So here's what we're doing today. Let me, let, me, let me set a little direction for us today. We are going through the Sermon on the Mount together as a church. And we're four weeks in. This is our fourth week. The first thing we looked at is that when Jesus came, he came proclaiming this message, this gospel of the kingdom of God that God is establishing his rule and his reign here on earth just like it is in heaven through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so he's setting up a kingdom, and, and his kingdom has these values. The Beatitudes is, is the list that we see at the very beginning of this Sermon on the Mount. That's, that's how we get in. We, we come poor in spirit. We come mourning. We come with, with empty, humble hands saying, Lord, I'm in need of something that I don't have on my own. And our king is a generous king. He's a benevolent king. He's a merciful and gracious king. Amen? So we don't get into this kingdom by our own efforts. We're in this kingdom by his efforts on our behalf and his grace toward us. And then last week, Kyle was preaching that the, the people in this kingdom, they're going to be salty. They're going to be a little bit different. They're going to be light. They're going to shine like lights in a, in a dark sort of world. And today, we're going to set up one last piece of framework, kind of a transitional piece of framework before we start getting into more specific teachings about 
you know, hatred and adultery and, and turning the other cheek and loving your enemies and how to pray and how to give. Everything going forward is going to be very practical and very, very um, applicable to our lives. But today we kind of got to zoom out. We got to look big picture at a few things. And uh, it's a really challenging section of scripture to rightly understand and interpret. So I would appreciate you to pray for me and I'll pray for you. And we need God to do the work here today. Amen. All right, Lord, we, we come to you right now. And we thank you that these words have been preserved for us so that 2,000 years later, we can hear the voice of Jesus preaching to us, teaching us, proclaiming the kingdom of God. God, I thank you that your Holy Spirit is active and at work in us when we open the pages of this book. And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, guide and direct my words, that I would only teach that which is in line with the truth of this book. And Lord, for all of us, would you open up our hearts and would you open up our minds to really think and to really understand and to really wrestle with this this section of scripture and this section of teaching that is still challenging to us all these many centuries later. We love you, Jesus. We want to give you our worship and our praise and our attention. We pray all these things in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. So, uh, a a couple of different countries in the news right now have had transfers of power. Uh, Israel has had kind of an interesting like political coup sort of thing, transfer of power. Uh, I read that Iran has a new president in the last few weeks. Myanmar had a very violent sort of governmental overthrow coup sort of a thing. And it made me think back to even the last couple of presidential elections. I know I said presidential elections, the temperature just went up like four more degrees in this room already. So just bear with me for a second. But it's something that we take for granted, this idea of a peaceful transfer of power. There's a new administration coming in. A new president is in charge. We as Americans take that for granted. And even in in the year 2020, when there was all sorts of, you know, uh, conversation nationally about are we going to see a peaceful trans, uh, you know, transition of power it was kind of the first time for us as Americans, at least, at least for me and my generation, to like really wrestle with these sorts of things that we take for granted. Because when you look out throughout the course of human history, that's not been the norm. It is not the norm for kings and monarchs and rulers and prime ministers to just peacefully hand their power away to someone else. Most commonly, it happens through violence. And it's wild that we get to live in this era of human history where this does happen now. It's pretty cool. I'm grateful for it. But it's not always been the case. And it was not the case during Jesus' earthly life and ministry. It was not the case in the politics of the day that Jesus shows up and says, there's a new kingdom. You know what that did? That ruffled some feathers. It raised some eyebrows. Whoa, he's proclaiming a new kingdom. He's setting, up a, he's, he's setting himself up as the king. What's this going to look like? What's this transfer of power going to be like? What's this administration going to be like? And, and it's raising all sorts of questions about who Jesus is and what he's coming to do and how he's going to take over. The, the, you know, is he going to kick Rome out? Are we going to have violent revolution? Is he going to kick the Herods out? What's it going to look like? It even started raising questions about Jesus' relationship to Israel in the past. Think about this. Think about this. We just heard in our scripture reading from our sister Natalie, Jesus starts off, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. Now, why would Jesus need to say something like that? Because people were saying 
that he was going to abolish the Torah and the prophets. So he's having to do some clarification. He's having to do some, uh, some, some teaching about what this transfer of power is going to look like. And friends, let me just say, as Jesus is inaugurating the kingdom of God and he teaches on the relationship that we have to what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, this is one of the most complicated things in Christian doctrine. How do we live as faithful followers of Jesus? What is our relationship to all of these books of the Bible that came before Jesus? It's really complicated. In fact, most of the New Testament was written to help us wrestle with these questions. In in the last 20 centuries of church history, there's so much writing and teaching and work to to try to understand this. I don't think that in the next 30 minutes, I'm going to solve it, okay? But I do know that I can help you see a few things in these passages that will be very helpful for you if you take them to heart. The most important thing, number one most important thing, is that Jesus is the key. If you remember nothing else that I say, remember to keep your eyes fixated on Jesus. He's the key to understanding the kingdom of God, He's the key to living out the kingdom values. He's the key to it all. So put that in your Bible, put that in your notebook. He says, he says, I have come to fulfill all of it. Now, I want to do a couple of things, if you'll allow me. I want to do a few things. I want to zoom out. And I want to take you to Bible college for a few minutes, if that's okay. Okay? Uh, like I said, this is a really complicated passage to understand, and I want to give you some tools that I think will help you understand not only this passage, but all of the Bible. Then I want to zoom in back on this passage, and I want to do a little bit of Mythbusters. There are some things that, that people say about this passage of Scripture that I would, like to, I would like to correct. And then finally, I want to zoom in on you and your heart and your relationship before the Lord, okay? So we're going like super big, super broad, medium, and then we're going to go fine point. And you might say, Pastor Aaron, it's really hot in here. Is this going to take a long time? Yes. Buckle up and quit whining. Let's go. I'll go as long as that timer doesn't flash at me. Okay. Bible college. We are going to take a class in hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, the science and art of biblical interpretation. And just so that the, the name is a little bit misleading, there are hymenutics too. It's for men and women. It's for all of you, okay? That was a bad joke. I'm sorry. It's the heat. It's getting to me. Hermeneutics is the science and art of biblical interpretation. Let me put it to you this way. Anytime you read anything, you have certain rules that you are unconsciously applying and you don't even know it. So when you read a, a newspaper or an article, you read that differently than you read a, you know, a John Grisham novel right? You, you, you approach it differently, and you don't even know that you're doing it. The reason you do it is because you have been, you know, brought up in a culture, or you've read, or you've learned, and you have all of these sort of unconscious assumptions that you're making about certain things. Uh, let me ask this question. How many of you like documentaries? Anybody here like documentaries? I love documentaries. Documentaries, though, are not the same as security camera footage. Have you ever watched security camera footage? It's very boring. 
Now, security camera footage sometimes makes its way into documentaries, but the person who made the documentary is editing things and cutting things up in a certain way to make a particular point or to tell a certain story. So when you watch a documentary, you might unconsciously be thinking, this is just pure, un unadulterated you know, security camera footage, but it's not. Somebody put it together on purpose in such a way as to make a point. The Gospels are not security camera footage of Jesus' life. They are documentaries. Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, crafted his documentary to tell us that Jesus is the long-awaited Davidic Messiah. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, crafted his documentary just a little bit different. Because John is a little bit different. <laughs> when you read the Bible, you are coming to the Bible with all of these kind of unspoken assumptions, unspoken, uh, maybe even sometimes unthought-through expectations about what the Bible is. And we need to recognize that so that we can come to the Bible with humility and with curiosity and with good, solid biblical tools. My, my, uh, this is a quote from my hermeneutics textbook when I, when I went through this class in seminary from Henry Verkler and Carolyn Ayayo. Uh, both are scholars. I can't remember which university right now. But it says this. When we hear someone recite or read a text, our understanding of what we hear or read is usually spontaneous. The rules by which we interpret meaning occur automatically and unconsciously. When something blocks that spontaneous understanding, all of a sudden we become more aware of the processes that we use to understand. Like, for example, when you're translating from one language to another. Hermeneutics is just essentially the codification of the processes we normally use at an unconscious level to understand the meaning of a communication. Okay? Let me paraphrase that for you. Hermeneutics is saying, there's some, there's some things that I might be assuming about the Bible. I want to come to the Bible on the Bible's terms, not on my own terms. And you've got to think about it. What, just, just for a moment here. God chose to speak to us through a particular people group in a particular part of the world in a particular time in human history. He just did. We're, we're not ancient Israelites, even if you're Jewish, you're still not ancient. Well, some of you are like, kind of, you're ancient, but you're not, right? There's, we have these gaps between us and the, the human vessels that God used to write the Bible. We have a historical gap. We're just disconnected from history. And we can learn about it, and we can study about it, and we could learn about, you know, when, when, we, when we read the story of Jonah and go into Nineveh, why did he hate the Assyrians? Why did he hate the Ninevites so much? And like, oh, because the Assyrians had really oppressed and harmed the people of Israel. Like, oh, that history helps us understand the Bible a little bit better. There's a cultural gap. Uh, there's things in their culture that they did that we just don't do. Let me, show of hands, how many of you are preparing uh, to throw a new moon festival later this month? Anybody? Not a single one of you? Weird, because they were doing it in the Bible all the time. Just a normal part of their culture. Okay, show of hands. How many of you plan to blow something up next Sunday in honor of America? That's, that's weird, okay? Like, if, if ancient Israelites came to our culture, like, you're going to explode things because you're happy? Like, usually that's the sound of warfare. That's a weird cultural thing. Think about it. No, I'm serious. Think about it next week. Like, why are we blowing this up for America? There's a cultural gap. There's a philosophical gap. In our cultural context, 
largely, we assume sort of a, a scientific or even naturalistic sort of framework. But they, in the ancient world, they did not. Everything was spiritual in the ancient world. And so we might misread the Bible because we're coming with a certain set of assumptions. And then there's just the, 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 the flat out, the language gap. The Bible was not written in English. The Apostle Paul did not carry a King James Bible, okay? The Bible was written in, in ancient Hebrew and in Greek and a little bit in Aramaic. And there's certain turns of phrases. Or there's certain things that are just hard to translate. And, and thank God for faithful Bible translators who work so hard so that we really can understand the words that were written for them. But there's some things that are just challenging. I read in a commentary that when uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken went to open up their first uh, restaurants in China, you guys know the slogan for KFC? Finger licking good. I actually heard it on a commercial yesterday. I'm like, that's gross. That was their slogan. It still is their slogan. Finger licking good. When they opened up their first stores in China, whoever translated it <laughs> into Mandarin put it as eat your fingers off. And uh, they were wondering why sales were terrible, right? So there's just these language gaps. There's all these things that, that God gave us this book. God gave us his word from a thousand years ago and different languages and different cultures and we need to come with humility and we need to use good tools to understand what the Bible is teaching us. I want to give you briefly five good tools, five quick tools that you can use. There are many more and actually on our website I've recommended a book called Dig Deeper. It has a lot more tools. It's, a, it's accessible. It's a good read. It's a good uh, book to have in your library. Let me just give you five that will help you understand your Bible better. Number one, genre. When you're reading the Bible, what genre, uh, the, the, the Bible has a lot of different books and a lot of different genres. So you read the Psalms, where he says, you know, my, I'm, my, I'm poured out like wax. You read that differently than when Jesus says, I thirst in the Gospels. You read apocalyptic stuff in Revelation and Daniel differently than you read holiness codes in Leviticus. You need to think, what genre am I reading? What style is this? Because you do that. You read novels differently than you would read a, a nonfiction biography and you would, read the, you would read those things differently. You would watch movies differently. So we need to do that when we come to the Bible. What genre am I reading? Tool number two, the author's intent. Now, all scripture is breathed out by God. So there's the divine author. So you can always be asking, God, what do you want to teach me? What do you want me to learn in this passage? But we also affirm that the scripture came through Human beings with different personalities and different communication styles. And, and I, was, like, I was reading something in 2 Samuel just in my, my personal reading the other day. And it's like this weird little detail about a battle. I'm like, what is, what is this in here for? What's the author trying to communicate? And it kind of led me down a rabbit trail of thought. And, and that can be a really helpful exercise to think, what is this author, the human author, trying to say? Why would they include that? What are they linking to? Tool number three. The fallen condition focus. Brian Chappell was one of my professors also in seminary, and he, he writes this. He says, The corrupted state of our world and our beings cries for God's aid. He responds with the truths of Scripture and gives us hope by focusing his grace on a facet of our fallen condition in every portion of his word. Every portion of his word has something to say about our brokenness. It could be sin, it could be suffering, it could be foolishness. God intends for each passage to give us, oh sorry, no text was written merely for those in the past. God intends for each passage to give us the endurance and the encouragement we need for today. 
So the fallen condition focus is the mutual human condition that contemporary believers share with those to or about whom the text was written that requires the grace of the passage for God's people to glorify and enjoy him. Let me paraphrase that for you because he's a smart guy. The people in the Bible were pretty messed up. You and I are pretty messed up. And there's grace of God for us in every passage. Tool number four, the biblical storyline. Sometimes you've got to pause, you've got you to zoom out big picture. Where are we in the storyline? God created the world in perfection and mankind rebelled and we fell into sin and then God promised redemption through the people of Israel and the family of Abraham and Israel was enslaved in Egypt and then were brought into the promised land but were unfaithful and, and were taken into exile and then they got to come back to the land and then Jesus shows up and then he, he dies and he rises again and he sends his apostles out in the acts and then, and then there's this promise of his return and we're living in this, this time where we're waiting for his return. You gotta zoom out and think, where, where is this happening? in the storyline of scripture. I even like sometimes when you're reading the Psalms, you can find the stuff online. Like when were the Psalms written in the life of David or the other authors of the Psalms? And it helps bring a little bit more meaning, like Psalm 51 being written after David committed his wicked sin with Bathsheba. It brings more meaning to it. Where is this happening in the biblical storyline? And then lastly, most importantly, tool number five, Jesus and the gospel. Everything in the Bible, in some way, shape, or form, is about Jesus. He just said it. We just heard him say this in in verse 17. He says, I did not come to abolish the law of the prophets. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Or in Luke chapter 22, after his resurrection, he has a Bible study with his disciples. And it says that he explains to them everything in the Bible and how it points to him. It always ultimately leads us to Jesus in some way, shape, or form. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. All right, that was Bible school, okay? These are some of the tools I want you to have. Again, like I said, there's more in that book, but I want you to understand the kind of thinking we need to have when we come to a passage like this. So I'm gonna read through this passage one more time. I want you to pay careful attention to it And then I just want to spend the rest of our time dispelling four myths, okay? Verse 17. Don't think that I came to abolish or get rid of, destroy the Torah or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, listen, truly, Until heaven and earth pass away, not the the smallest letter, the little iota or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of these, the least of these commands, and you teach others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom, but least. But whoever teaches these commands, whoever does and teaches these commands, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can't even get into the kingdom of heaven. Some challenging words from our Savior. Four myths I want to address. Myth number one, Jesus abolished the Torah and the prophets. 
Now, that might sound a little bit silly to say after we just read, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but some, maybe they wouldn't say it quite that flatly, but it is quite common to find Christian preachers or authors or even scholars who will say something to the effect of, we don't need the Old Testament anymore. A lot of people's problems with the Bible, people in our culture more broadly, uh, they, they come from the Old Testament. The, those are where the more violent stories happen or where certain things that make you, you blush or, or, or the, the kind of the painting or the broad brushing of, of the Old Testament God as this mean, angry God and then Jesus comes and he's all happy and nice and kind. And A lot of people walk away from the faith, walk away from the Bible because of the Old Testament. And famous preachers, famous preachers, have said some pretty outlandish things, even in recent years, about unhitching ourselves from the Old Testament. Maybe they wouldn't say it quite this bluntly, but more or less, it's, yeah, we don't need the Torah, we don't need the prophets anymore. And friends, I'm here to tell you that that's a myth. Jesus clearly said, I did not come to abolish them. Now, to be fair, there are some things that the Apostle Paul says about the law that could be misconstrued or taken out of context to say we don't need the law, we don't need the Torah anymore. I think maybe uh, most specifically in in Ephesians chapter 2 when when Paul says that God abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And I don't want to preach a sermon on that, but go look at the context. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 is not writing that we don't need the Torah anymore. He is saying that what God did through Christ was tear down this dividing wall of hostility between Jewish followers of Jesus and and Gentile non-Jewish followers of Jesus. And he did this by getting rid of all of these extra commands and all of these burdensome things that particularly the, the Pharisees were putting on followers of Jesus. He got rid of all of that so our identity is in him, not in our uh, uh, moral performance. Paul said, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. Paul said the law is good when used lawfully. Paul is not anti-Torah. Jesus is not anti-Torah. Now, our relationship to these things can be a little bit challenging. That's why I said it's, it's, such, this, it's such a tough topic. But no, we need the Old Testament. You should read your Old Testament. You should devour the book of Leviticus. By God's grace, we are going to do a sermon series on Leviticus if it kills you. I mean, if it kills me at some point here, like in the next year or two, I really, really, really want to do it. We are going to do a a new series later this fall called Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, and I'm looking forward to that. Jesus faithfully embodies everything that the Torah points to. Everything that the Torah points to, we we can't understand Jesus without the Old Testament. So that myth is busted. I wish I had like a cool graphic, like busted, that would go up on the screen. Myth number two. Jesus came along with a Sermon on the Mount and just taught something brand new, radically new, radically different. Read through the Sermon on the Mount. There are no new topics introduced in the Sermon on the Mount that aren't already addressed in the Torah. And in fact, the newness of what Jesus taught was not what he taught, but the authority with which he taught. Jesus, you know, um, 
the, the teaching itself, you know, hey, you know, love God and love your neighbors, you know, love your neighbors yourself. Where did that come from? That comes from the Torah. It, it all comes from the Torah. He's not saying something radically new, but what he is doing is he is interpreting it with the authority of God himself. Jesus is not showing up and saying, oh, you know, I have this totally radical, out-of-left-field uh, interpretation that you've never heard before. He's coming along in a world where this is what the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees love to do. They love to come along and debate and discuss and whose interpretation of the Bible is right. And he shows up with power and with authority because Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus comes up and says, yeah, the rabbis are telling you this or that, but let me tell you what I was thinking when I had this written. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of the letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. He's, he's tying himself to what was written before. Every letter, everything. He's not showing up and saying, okay guys, ignore everything in the past. I've got all this brand new teaching for you. He's like, no, you really got to pay attention to what was written in the past for you. So it's not radical new teaching it's authoritative teaching, the authority of God himself. Myth number three, swinging the pendulum to the other side. Jesus' fulfillment of the Torah changes nothing. There are some who are, I think, well-meaning, but misguided, who then say, particularly for uh, Gentile followers of Jesus, non-Jewish followers of Jesus, who say, okay then, well, we got to get back to the Bible. We have to live everything out the way Leviticus said and Deuteronomy said. No, that's not how we interact with the Torah because Jesus showed up and he's the once and for all sacrifice. So there's no more sacrifices needed. Amen, church? I, I know this might sound strange to some of you, but I have interacted with Christians who have um, worked to make garments for the temple priesthood to make the elements like the table and the candle and all that sort of stuff so that when Jesus shows up and sets up the millennial kingdom, they can re-pick back up animal sacrifices. And I just shake my head. I know it's a little bit of a fringe sort of belief, but we can start to go in that direction when we say, well, I just need to do everything in the book of Leviticus the way that it's written for the ancient uh, Israelite audience. And friends, Jesus showed up and he did change some things. Fulfilling things does shift some things, does it not? The author of Hebrews in chapter 7, verse 12 says, when there's a change of the priesthood, there must be a change of the Torah as well. By the way, Jesus is our great high priest, and he did not come from the, the, the tribe of Levi. He came from the tribe of Judah. That means there has to be some changes in the law. It's our relationship to it shifts, but it, 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 we don't throw it out. It's, you, guys the, you guys getting the feeling here like it's, it's kind of hard to live in the tension? Do we throw it out or do we do it exactly how it's, you know, was for the ancient Israelites? It's hard. It's hard to live in the tensions, is it not? It's hard to not go this side or that side or, or waver back and forth. I think even some of Jesus in, in this passage where it's kind of pulling us one way and pulling us the other way is because there were people in his audience who were religious authorities and religious teachers who were arguing one way or the other and he's trying to say, look, we're not even going to play that game. I'm here to tell you the kingdom is here and it's all about me. Now, myth number four is where I want to bring it down to the personal level. Myth number four is something like this, that in the Old Testament, 
People were saved by keeping the Torah, but in the New Testament, people are saved by grace. A closely related cousin of this myth is what I mentioned earlier, that in the Old Testament, God was really cranky and really grumpy and really hard to please, and then Jesus shows up, and he's just so full of like sunshine and puppies and lollipops and rainbows, and he's just so nice and so... Oh. Verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees who spend their entire working life reading, writing, studying, and interpreting the scripture and trying to live holy lives, unless you're better than them, you cannot get into the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. Jesus is going to talk about hell and judgment and about cutting your hand off and gouging your eye out if you're stumbling in sin. Don't at me with this Jesus was nice nonsense. Jesus tied himself to the God of the Old Testament, his Father in heaven. There is no division between Old and New Testament. Jesus comes with a ferocity that should be paid attention to. And to believe this myth is to miss out on the pattern of salvation from page one to page 1,000 of the book. And it's this. God's grace always precedes his commandments. When God redeemed and rescued his people Israel from slavery in Egypt, he did so as an unmerited act of his mercy and grace and compassion. Then he took his people to Mount Sinai And he gave them the commandments and said, this is what it looks like to live in faithful response to what I've already done. Grace precedes commandment. Mercy precedes our obedience. When Jesus says that your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, Don't forget what we just read a few verses ago at the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How do you get in on this kingdom? How do you you belong to the kingdom? By being poor in your spirit and saying, God, I don't have what is needed. I can't meet the bar. I can't. Every time I try, I fail. Every time I try to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, I fall flat on my face. Don't forget the words of Jesus that he just said a moment ago. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You get in on this kingdom goodness by knowing that you can't do that. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, the the Pharisees and the scribes, they're playing this religious outdo one another game. He goes, you can play that game if you want, or you can come over here and let me teach you a whole different way to live, which is based on my grace and my mercy. Friends, true righteousness is always a gift from Jesus. 
It's not something that we have within ourselves. It's not something we can do by our own heroic moral efforts. It's always a gift from God. Look at the way that the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not, not many of you were wise from a, a human perspective. This kind of sounds like our Beatitudes people, right? Not powerful, not, not of noble birth. But you know what? God chose what was foolish in the eyes of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And he's chosen what the world is, just looks at as insignificant and despised, what's viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. Doesn't that sound like our Beatitudes? We don't get to boast in his presence. We don't get to come before God and say, I did it. I exceeded the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Congratulate me, Lord. We don't do that. We don't boast in his presence. And Paul says this, it's from him that you are in Christ Jesus. Jesus became wisdom from God for us. He became our righteousness. He became our sanctification. He became our redemption in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus is the gift of righteousness for you. Jesus lived a perfect life, faithfully embodying not just the letter of the law found in the Torah, but the very spirit and the very heart behind all of it. And Jesus is the sacrifice who died on the cross in your place for your sin, for my sin. And he rose from the dead on the third day to offer mercy and grace and forgiveness and God's love to all who will believe in him. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's always a gift. And here's the deal. Some of you here today, maybe you've never placed your faith in Jesus. You've never given your life to him. And you're sitting there thinking, that maybe that sounds a little bit too good to be true. Yeah, it is way too good to be true. It's the gospel for crying out loud. You want a you man-made religion? You want to find some religious belief system that humans came up with? They'll always tell you, try harder, do better. Jesus comes and says, I did better for you. Trust in me. Receive grace from me. Today could be the day that you place your faith in Jesus. You stop your own moral striving and your own moral efforts and you let Jesus be your gift of righteousness. But I want to talk for a moment to those of you who already have received God's grace in that saving way but can we be honest? Our hearts love to go right back into that ditch of works righteousness. You likely have had a moment as a follower of Jesus where you've messed up. You screwed up and you're thinking to yourself, well, I got kind of two options here. Try harder or despair. Despair. I'm just curious, show of hands, how many of you have done that try harder thing? Oh, I screwed up, I messed up, I just need to work harder, try more. Done it today. Just out of curiosity, how many of you maybe the mess up and you, oh, how am I still struggling with that, that kind of more despairing? Anybody, anybody here beat yourself up? Anybody do both in the same day? (laughs) 
if your participation in the kingdom of God is about your moral efforts, then yeah, you should despair. But it never was about you in the first place. It always has been and it always will be God's gift of righteousness for you. So when you hear the enemy chirping in your ear, I love the, I'm paraphrasing Martin Luther, but when you hear the enemy chirping in your ear, you can just respond, yeah, you're, you're telling me how bad I am? You don't even know how bad I am. I'm way worse than you think I am, Satan. I'm a monster. But Jesus knows me fully. Jesus knows every thought I've had. Jesus knows every wrong action I've ever done. Jesus knows every good action I've done with the wrong motives. And he still bled for me. It's not about you. It's not about your moral performance. Your, your right standing as a citizen can't be about you. You want to play that game, Jesus says? Go ahead. You got to be more righteous than the scribes of the Pharisees or you can come poor in spirit and humble and mourning and know that the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. As we come to the table of the Lord here to celebrate communion, my prayer is that you would come with that kind of gospel-shaped humility and boldness. We get to eat and drink at the table of the king for crying out loud. How good is this? Lord, we, we bring our hearts to you right now. Lord, for every heart that is tempted to go into prideful self-sufficiency, Lord, would you break us of that? And every heart that is tempted to go into despair and, and woe is me when we can't get it right, would you break us of that, Lord? And would you help us to remember the truth of the gospel, that it's Christ's righteousness on our behalf, Christ's perfect righteousness that is gifted to us. So may we come now with confidence and humility. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.